Okay, I want to try and pick up on some aspects of the talk last night and amplify them. I always like to try and think of titles for talks because they often give me a clue about what I want to talk about. And uh, for those who are English, you'll probably know this is rather a pun on um, an English television programme. And so I sort of played around with thinking about calling How Do You Think You Are? Um, do you know that one? <laughs> okay. The main theme I want to pick up on is the nature of the self tonight, both pro and contra, for and against. One of the things that we are attempting to have insight into in our practice of meditation, in our practice in general, is to see through, if you like, the notion of any solidity to our sense of self. To see the self not as a something. To learn to begin to live it as, in a sense, the way the Buddha indicates, which is as a process. And so what we're really dealing with, um, again, I was playing with titles, is in a sense the courage to be, um, the way to be in this world, and how to live the self as a verb as opposed to a thing. So those are the kind of themes I want to explore this evening. One of the reasons why I think this follows on from what I was talking about last night was I was talking about, obviously, impermanence last night, how impermanence is the warp and woof of everything. And I almost made a joke of it, didn't I, in saying, you know, everything is impermanent except me. You know, that's the one thing that's not impermanent, or that's the way I feel about it. You know? And uh, probably most of us would feel similar, I think, in the sense of you know, everything is impermanence, it's something we exceed to. We might even see the reality of it, and we might even live some of that, but we deep down have this feeling that there is something within us which is not that fleeting, not that impermanent. Perhaps, I don't know. You know I'll leave that for you to decide. Certainly the notion of being a self in any fixed sense has a great deal to do with the way that we behave in the world. And if there's one thing that Buddhism is primarily as a tradition, and bear in mind I don't even like the word Buddhism, as a tradition though this particular form of practice has taken the form of an ethics primarily. So one of its big component constituent parts, in fact its overwhelming constituent part, even psychologically, is, is its ethics. So when it looks, for example, at the nature of the mind, and this is being done ever since the inception of the tradition with the Buddha himself and all of his come after, it's been often looking at the psychological nature of the way that we are in this world. And so this, the ethics that arises is a psychological ethics based on how we are, you know, how we are in this world. Both the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, it's all of that. You know, so it looks very penetratingly into the nature of the mind and looking at the components that make up the nature of the mind as being divided into ethical, unethical, and neutral 
primarily as characteristics. And I won't go down that route tonight, but that's what we're looking at. What the tradition does is it explodes the myth of any fixed centre for our operations, any sense of any fixity, any essential nature to who and what we are. And this is very, very important. It's almost a direct corollary to the teaching of impermanence. You know, again, going back to the way I was joking about it last night, if everything else is impermanent, well, isn't it rather absurd that there is this so-called self, which you and I are, perhaps we would more identify it in Western terms with being an ego, that is fixed and unchanging and permanent in the world. And it becomes rather an absurdity. However, the majority of the traditions in the world have often gone down that route of specifying something fixed and permanent within the individual. Specifically in the Buddha's era, this is what he was arguing against, was the idea of any fixed and unchanging notion to who you or I am in this world. Now, before I get into the details of it, let's just look at what being a self entails. Well, first of all, I would, again, perhaps put as something contentious, perhaps, that being a self is actually a pretty painful business. Trying to be a self in this world, trying to be something which is fixed and immutable, something which is unchanging. (coughs) I often see it in... I usually do this with a board when I can write it up, but when you take the first person pronoun in English, I, it looks a pretty lonely, desolate individual, doesn't it? It's like a little stick, I. And it takes a hell of a lot of effort to try and keep that I together. There's a lot of effort involved, a lot of worry, a lot of frustration, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, trying to keep that sense of I-ness together in this world. I often joke about and call it the royal I-ness. It's the way that we often see ourselves. Keeping that together is an enormous task. And it's one that, as you've just heard me say, that entails so much pain and so much effort, so much resistance to what I am not, what I can't do, what I can do, Think of the ways that you divide yourself up. And we all do this. We all see ourselves in specific ways. I am this type of person. Or I am that type of person. People even do it to you, won't they? They'll say, you're that type of person. Sometimes they will even identify you through your profession, through what you do. One of the classic questions that everybody gets asked usually on first meeting is, what do you do? Almost as if you can identify somebody by what they do. And it tells you something about who they are. Now, of course, in one sense, this has a spin-off, a payoff, in that it allows us to create a sense of identity. This is the sort of person I am, is a statement of identity. This is the sort of job I do and where there is identification with it, an identification leads to a sense of identity. Now, what the Buddha is contending is that being is before identity. 
any sense of identity that we tend to take on, our sense of being. What we come to, what we're faced with in the sheer fact of sitting down on a cushion, closing our eyes and trying to do the sorts of things that we've done today, just paying attention to the simple things, is we're dropping a lot of that stuff. We're shedding it. You know, just Even just for that brief moment, you know, the brief 45 minutes throughout sessions in the day when you sit on that cushion, being is before any sense of identity that you might have. You are learning to confront the bare existential facets of your existence. I would almost go to say you're simply breathing. That's all you're doing. Um, This is a radical statement in the modern world. Sit down on a cushion and just breathe. Everybody else is doing something and trying to be something and you can sit on a cushion and be nothing for this moment in time. You don't have to try. You do not have to make an effort to do anything other than just observe what is going on. And it really is quite a radical statement in many ways in, in terms of the contemporary world. So being, our being, the Buddha is contending, is in fact before any role or any identity that we care to take on board. However, where there is a self involved, this will entail not only all of the travails that I've talked about, all of the you know, the desperation to try and keep this self in existence, to maintain a self-identity, to maintain some kind of presence in the world. Um, but it will also entail us, you know, cutting ourselves off from others, often. I, other, is a duality, which we so easily enter into. And where the I is foremost, the other becomes the object for manipulation. In fact, I would even go so far, and I'm hoping I'm throwing out contentious issues here, so I want you to come back at me, really. Where the I is foremost, where the I is present, then the other is diminished in some way. The I is foremost, the other can be manipulated. The other can simply be for the I. That is all, for the self, in this way. Not only that, is the self obfuscates our relationship with reality. In the sense that it sits there in front of our vision and dominates our vision. This is all obviously metaphorical, but it dominates our vision. The things that we see, the even natural phenomena for the world, become for us. We appropriate them for a self, in other words. They become subject to the psychopathology of craving, which only comes about through being a self-centred I. Literally, we become full of ourselves. When we become full of ourselves, there is no room, in many senses, for the other to be to allow the other person really to be. So I'm saying this because this is very important, because, and perhaps I'm painting a, very, painting a very bleak picture deliberately here, is because when that is the case, when self is uppermost, when it's foremost, when it's there as the foreground of our experience, then there can be no real relationship with anything or with anyone. Because the only relationship there is is with yourself. Because there is never any turning outwards. 
Interestingly, in Buddhist psychology, when it speaks about the negative traits of mind, such as anger, resentment, jealousy, you know, I could give you a great litany of all of the negative traits. I'm sure you can probably spring, would probably spring to mind if you thought about negative psychological states as well. All of these within, again, the original languages, have the basic um, meaning of cutting us off from others. So anger cuts us off. Resentment cuts us off. Jealousy cuts us off. In other words, we retreat back into self in this way. There is no movement outwards. Whereas the direct opposite occurs, of course, with the development of wholesome psychological traits. So, for example, compassion, kindness, generosity. These things get us out and connect with people. In fact, again, in the original languages, they have a sort of stickiness implied by the terms which make us adhere to others in this. They literally weld us to others. When we engage in an act of generosity we become much closer, almost welded to the other. Whereas those negative psychological traits, wherein we retreat into ourselves, literally cut us off from the world. We become self-absorbed. Now the Buddha was very, very keen to dispel the myth of this fixated, self-centred notion to actually dispel it completely. In fact, one of the things that you find as a refrain that runs throughout the Satipatthana Sutta, when you actually read it, and I would recommend, perhaps when you go away from here, if you haven't read it, to read through it. It's actually a very interesting document. Because it says, for example, to experience something as something. And in this case, it says, you know, where we started off, to experience, as in mindfulness of breathing, to experience body as body, to experience feeling as feeling, to experience mind as mind, and so on and so forth. I won't go through them all. What is indicating by that, to experience body as body, to experience feeling as feeling, not to experience body as self, not to experience feeling as self, and not to experience mind states as self. In fact, as an alternative refrain, I'm not going to suggest you use it at this stage in the retreat, but as an alternative refrain, everything arises can be seen as not I, not me, and not mine. It's just arising. So when something is arising, it's not I, it's not me, and it's not mine. And those are all the ways, in many ways, that we have in language of appropriating things as being for oneself. It is I. It is me. This is the way I am. This is about me. And this is certainly mine. Now, hopefully you can see there's a pathology linked in that. (laughs) of of really, really retreating and cutting yourself off from the world. Where this I is, in some senses, there can be no real possibility of that relationship which moves out and is really close to others 
in things like kindness. Not to say that kindness isn't there, but that it just will not be manifest in the movement outwards towards others. Where that eye is, compassion cannot be. Because compassion there would only be for self. Generosity would only be for self. It would be for the payback for self in each case. So this way of looking at things that the Buddha is trying to encourage us to see is to dispel the illusion of this centeredness by showing, in fact, and trying to demonstrate through our experience, again, it's not meant to be a metaphysical theory, to demonstrate through our experience that this I, this royal I, this ego, in fact, does not exist in the way that we think it does. That it's a product often of language. It's a product of, for example, memory. And I'll go into this in a second. So he takes this so-called unitary sense of self that we experience and tries to show how it can be broken down into components each of which is not self. Every component you break it down to is not self. That anything that we predicate as being self is predicated on the operation of something like this. Now let me give you the way this is usually broke down. This is the most simple formula for breaking it down. The first dimension is to see self in terms of corporeality, in terms of form, to do with the body. Well, these are called khandas, heaps, aggregates. Everything's aggregated under the, under the notion of some kind of form. The flesh, the bones, the tissue, the lymph the blood, you know, you name it, everything that goes up to make this corporeal form. What the Buddha is saying is, it would be crazy if you identified yourself with this corporeal form. Because part of the nature of being a self, so he's claiming, and again I'll leave you to examine this, is that it would have to be under your control. Now the one thing we immediately know when we start to look at the body is it's not under our control. In fact, it does things that we have no knowledge of whatsoever a lot of the time. In fact, it's doing them constantly. <clears throat> it does something, of course, which I spoke about jokingly again last night, um, that we don't particularly like. It ages. Yeah. It changes. And we have no control. We might attempt to, to control it, but ultimately we are, we are doomed to failure here in trying to control our change in terms of our, you know, the way that we look and the way that we are physically. That will continue to change the older you get. So we move from babyhood all the way through to old age and ultimately we actually have no control over that whatsoever. So if we attempt to identify ourselves with being a body, the Buddha says this will simply lead to distress, to suffering. Yeah, because if we think this is us, and I think we would be crazy to think this is us in some senses, then we are doomed 
to end up in a position of pain and distress and suffering because we can't control it. Many, many people do attempt to halt the ageing process, but of course it's they're fighting a losing battle here. So that's the first of the candidates for what might be a self. I, mean, I remember when I had to, we had to do this um, when I was in the monasteries, that we had to go through many analytic meditations, almost going down to, well, is yourself your big toe? <laughs> is yourself a hair follicle? Is yourself, you know, it went through the whole gamut of what makes up the physical self in order to kind of dispel the mythology that there was anything within the physical form that could possibly qualify for selfhood at all. In fact, I remember getting rather irritated by it, going through it day in, day out, week after week, as we went through this whole process. Then we come to the second of what is called the aggregates which is the aggregate of feeling. This is a Pali word, which is, or Pali Sanskrit word, which is Vedana. Vedana is not feeling in the way that we understand it in English. It's not emotion. You know, so often it's better translated as sensation. You know, that sensations come to us. They come to us in three forms. That's all. That's the whole range of our sensations. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. Pleasant nor unpleasant. So if it's pleasant, we will want to move towards it. If it's unpleasant, we will want to move away from it. If it's neither, then, well, we couldn't care less most of the time. We probably don't even notice it. However, sensations are impinging on us constantly. And part of the thing that you'll notice again in sitting meditation is sensation will be there continuously. There will be sensations associated with, obviously, your physicality, you know, bodily sensations, you know, what they call sukha, dukkha, nasukha, nadukha. You know, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant going on in the body. You know, so when you get that pain in your knee when you've been sitting towards the end of your 45 minutes, that comes to you as a strong, unpleasant sensation. And, of course, what happens when you get that strong, unpleasant sensation? You desire to move. You know, to alter your posture. You know, if it's pleasant, you want it to continue. <laughs> you would like to revel in it a little bit longer. And the same goes for also mental events. They also come strongly tinged with you, like with a feeling tone. The feeling tone, again, are of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. And, as you can see, as is similar with the physical sensations with the mental, if you like, sensations, I'd scare quote that, but certainly the feelings that go with them, if it's a pleasant thought, you want to stay with it. You would like probably to think about it a lot more, dwell in it. If it's a nice, you know, perhaps memory of the past, you might want to you know, soak yourself in that memory. If it's something rather nasty coming up within you, you immediately want to get rid of it. You want to move away from it. But then there's an awful lot of stuff which is neither coming up which you attach no particular importance to either way. Now these feelings will change. And one of the exercises we'll do later on in the week is actually looking at bodily sensations. Looking at the physical sensations. And when you actually begin to look at physical sensations, you may find 
uh, for example, they will change. Something pleasant, if you stay in a position long enough, might turn into something rather unpleasant. Something unpleasant might gravitate towards the pleasant. Either of them might slip into the neither, pleasant nor unpleasant. So they vacillate, they change. And this has occurred throughout our lives, our feelings have changed throughout our lives. Things have slipped, and usually it's the annoyance of other people, isn't it? I thought you liked that. No, I don't. (laughs) That sort of thing goes on. Things change. And there's no rhyme nor reason often to why they change, other than they've just slipped from one sensation into another sensation. So anything that's even really, really pleasant will become unpleasant. You might find the most comfortable chair chair in the world. Sitting it for four or five hours, you feel really comfortable. Sitting it for five days, it's not going to feel so comfortable. That's the way. It's outside of your control. For example, if you were strapped to that chair, that those sensations would automatically arise. So these are not under our control, and if we try to grasp after them, then they somehow slip away from us and therefore will cause us pain and distress because they're not under control. And this is one of the big things, going back to last night, that I was trying to highlight, even with the beginning of that poem. You know, to become aware that things are not under your control are, is in a way immensely liberating. There's an immense peace to that. When we try to, for example, control events physically, well, we all know, for example, we can't do that because the body gets sick whether we like it or not. We pick up these viruses and bugs and germs and all sorts of things and there's very little we can do about it, no matter how well we might take care of ourselves. Our feelings, in terms of these sensations, slip and slide. They they vacillate, they go from liking something to disliking to neither disliking, perhaps going back to liking... And you can't really control that at all. And then we come to the most important, really, out of the whole of this analysis that the Buddha conducts, which is something which in in Pali and Sanskrit is known as sanya. Sanya is usually translated as perception, but it means discrimination. It means, if you're going to use it as a word, it also has to be a, a compound word, perception and discrimination. Perception and discrimination here is all of our ways of identifying things in the world. So it includes, for example, language. A vast part of it is language. The actual technical definition, if you want a technical definition, is to take an object and mark it for recognition. So what we're doing from childhood onwards... And even now, even when we learn something, in some senses we mark something. For example, we go out and somebody tells us the name of a tree that we haven't identified before, we've marked it for recognition again, so that literally we can recognise it here. Now, obviously, marking it is no good without memory. If you don't have any sense of memory or any faculty of memory of being able to remember how you've marked something, then it's pretty useless. And so memory becomes another key component for this identification and discrimination that we have. And in fact, the very notion of who you are 
is actually based on memory. This is one of the Buddha's key contentions. This very early stage in the development of Buddhist history and thought and philosophy. Its key contention is that you are because you remember things through your life. That memory is the glue, if you like, which welds together disparate events throughout your life and forms the notion of something we believe to be an I. And just to explore that just a second, for example, I can remember distinctly events from my very early childhood. I can remember events from when I first went to school. I can remember events sometimes from my adolescence, and so on and so forth, through various stages of my life. Now, I can't remember all of the events associated with being a child, being an adolescent, you know, being somebody, for example, at university studying and then doing various things in my life. I can remember fragments. Memory is fragmentary. Now, I can remember some of that stuff about childhood probably better than I can remember things last week you know, that I did. You know, so memory is welded together, and this notion of the self is welded together out of disparate events, connected And so memory is the glue, in some sense, which cements the notion of an I together. However, one of the things I really want to impress upon you, of course, is that that memory is fragmentary. It's not of the whole event. It's the notion of that memory which gives that that sense of identity running through our experience when there in fact is no identity running through experience. It's a bit like um, a rope. Do you know how a rope is formed? A rope is formed out of many, many little strands which overlap. There's no one thread that runs through a rope. A rope is just little threads which are all interlinked and threaded together. That's all. And the strength comes from that overlappingness. Of it, without any one, if you like, identical thread running the whole way through the rope. Our lives are like that. They're much more like a set of overlapping elements without any one underlying factor, which could be called a self, running through the whole thing. So memory is what welds our sense of self in this world. Now, without memory, things get pretty disastrous. Um, and for those of you who've ever come across the translation of this particular doctrine, I use doctrine and scare quotes here, as being the doctrine of no self, well, it's a pretty bad translation because it's not a doctrine of no self. It's a doctrine of what is not self. What the Buddha is trying to identify is what is not ourself. Not that there is no self because there quite clearly is something that we can identify as self, but it's not one identical factor running through things. And this notion of sanya or perception discrimination makes this very, very clear. Because, for example, again, it's not under our control, because memory you know, is fallible. It also, you know, towards 
old age starts to decline with many people. Not with everybody, but with many people it would decline. With some, and this is the most serious point about this, some with degenerative brain illnesses, such as the Alzheimer's and dementia and things like this, then when memory goes, it's a pretty terrifying experience because they literally can't remember who they are at all. Now, the Buddha is not recommending we become like people with dementia. (laughs) I would quite clearly say that. What he is recommending is that we don't cling to the notion of a fictitious self which is fixed and unchanging, but that we see how we operate, how we are. That was that kind of poor attempt at a joke I made earlier on, you know, How do you think you are? Because it's actually about the how that becomes important. He's trying to get us to see, both through the more doctrinal elements, which I'm trying to outline here, which is not actually doctrine, because it's only discoverable in terms of the practical details of doing meditation, and the meditation experience itself, which will keep on telling you, if you keep on going deeply enough into it, that there is nothing fixed to your experience. There is nothing there which is fixed. Not that there is nothing, but there is no thing. There's a big difference in just in the way you stress that. Here. There is no thing, and here what I mean is no fixed thing which underlies all of your experience. Now this is very, very important because it's the mythology and it's the illusion of there being something fixed within us which we feel, get angry. You'll feel this sense of self arising. You know, be passionately in love and you'll feel this sense of self. You know, all of these strong emotional states keep almost echoing a sense of self back to you as being something fixed, something immutable there. Even our language continues to echo it back at us, doesn't it? You know, in saying, there is a self. Because we keep on using this first-person pronoun. You know, I. I am like this, I am like that. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm this, I'm that. All the time. You know? It's part of the way, particularly in European languages, that we use language. You know? So it's very strongly echoed and reiterated and almost reified within the language that you use continuously. This leads the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein to say that he thinks the notion of the self is a grammatical error. <laughs> you know, it's just a product of the languages that we use, that's all, being subject and predicate. You know, where there are predicates of experience, there has to be a subject to conform to them. And the idea that you know, I am happy, well, there has to be an I to be happy rather than there is happiness. (laughs) So we're kind of misled by our languages as well into thinking there is this fixed self. Now the notion of sanya begins, when you really begin to see that, starts to break that notion down, that there is anything fixed within it, because there is nothing within the notion of discrimination which is controllable. You know, I was saying with age and degenerative diseases and all sorts of things... Our self is modifiable, it's malleable, it's plastic in many senses. Which self are you this week, almost, could be the question. 
Is it the same self as you were ten years ago? Well, it's clearly not that case, is it? We are changing all the time. So what we get left with is the notion of continuity, not the notion of identity. And I'll say a little bit more about that towards the end. Now we have another category here, the fourth category, which are known as sankharas, which are really habit formations, habit patterns. Patterns of behaviour, patterns of thinking that we develop for ourselves. And again, we could perhaps misconceivedly think of these as being us. In fact, very often, as I point out in many talks I give, that people do identify themselves with their habit patterns. In fact, they get very, very upset often when they have a habit pattern pointed out to them that irritates somebody else, you know, for example. And if you ever notice this, you know, say, well, you have that little habit, and they go, well, that's the way I am. <laughs> you know, get all defensive about it. And it really shows you, and even in those simple instances, how much we identify with the habit patterns that we develop for ourselves. And the habit patterns themselves are formed and forming, is the way they're actually used in the original language. They are changing. They don't remain identical. They are modified. They are modified in relationship to others and to external environment and to the ways that we find ourselves and all of these sorts of things. So they don't remain the same. We don't have identical habit patterns But of course, habit patterns themselves lead to habituations, propensities to behave in certain ways. And in fact, it's no accident that in the original language, in Pali and Sanskrit, sankhara and samsara are linked. They both have the idea of circularity within them, of going round in circles. Remember I mentioned this last night? This is part of the pattern of experience of going round in circles, the ways that we find ourselves. Finally, we have consciousness, vinyana. Yeah. Vinyana is a word which in Pali means to divide into subject and object. Yeah. It literally means to, to divide something into subject and object. And the job of vinyana is to know, that is all, to know whatever is arising. However, vinyana does not arise alone. It always arises with an object. There is no such thing in early Buddhism as pure consciousness. Much later schools in Buddhism develop this, but this is not what is actually coming out of the original text. The Buddha does not talk about pure consciousness whatsoever. In fact, he denies any such thing. Consciousness always arises together. In other words, our experience of the world, our conscious experience of the world, and the world arise simultaneously. This actually took um, Western philosophy up until the end of the 19th century to cotton onto the same idea in, in philosophical psychology. It was only in the late 19th century that you get a similar idea arising that consciousness always has to have an object. It never arises. It's like saying, can you be conscious without being conscious of something? There's a conundrum for you. I'll leave you with that one. So those are the five factors. Let me just run through them again. The five factors are form, our body, feelings, the sensations that we have, 
Sanya, which I went into quite a lot of detail about, which is perception and discrimination, where we get our sense of I from, you know, from memory and the ability to identify and discriminate and perceive all the sorts of things that we do in the world. The habit formations, both good and bad and indifferent, that we form through the course of our lives. And then the consciousness, which in a sense is no thing. None of them are self, so the Buddha is claiming, but any notion of a self that we have is predicated on the operation of those processes. And that's a big distinction there. It's an important distinction that, that what he's saying is there is not nothing going on, there is a lot going on, and we might identify it as being self, but none of it is fixed. It is all changing. None of it is under our control in terms of trying to identify any of those five factors as being ourself. Now, the good part about this, and I think it's kind of good news I left with you with last night, was the idea, of course, that if there is no fixed essence or identity, then that's extremely good news for all of us because we can do something about it. We can change. If there is fixity, if there is essentiality to any of us, you know, identity in the sense of identity that can't possibly change, then well, we might as well go home because we, all we can ever do is tinker with the peripheries. You know, we can only mess around with certain elements but never really, in some senses, affect the fundamental change that the Buddha is recommending that we do to gain this kind of liberation from the distress that we find ourselves in. Now, the distress that we find ourselves in, he quite clearly identifies is linked to this notion of I. An I craving, an I wanting, an I averse to all sorts of things. We like, we dislike, and we neither like nor dislike. However, the two strong poles of our experience are those likes and dislikes, aren't they? Because they draw us into behaviour continuously. We find ourselves... You know, salivating like Pavlov's dogs when there's something we like. You know, we find ourselves running a mile when it's something we don't like. You know, so in some senses there is nothing but this reactive behaviour going on when there is the I located at the centre of our experience. I was saying in the coordinator's dining room, like, actually Andy asked me about this, which is, Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst, had a wonderful thing in saying about the difference between the notion of the I as it gets instantiated in the experience of human beings and the reason why apes don't possess it. And part of the reason for this was, he said, that um, human beings come in contact with mirroring behaviour from their parents or mirrors at a very early stage in their development, often in childhood, babyhood. And he said, the difference is this. He said, if you actually present an ape with a mirror, what will it do? Well, it will hold the mirror up. It will look into the mirror. Be curious. Look round behind it. And lose all sense of interest after that. Not interested when it sees there's nothing behind it. What happens with human beings is this, he says. And I'm kind of paraphrasing his paper. (laughs) 
forever. <laughs> so the whole thing goes on forever. This is actually a very ancient myth. It's the myth of Narcissus. Okay. What happens with Narcissus? Well, there's many different versions of the legend, but what happens with Narcissus in one particular version, very popular in the medieval period, is that Narcissus sees his reflection in a pool of water, falls in love with his reflection, and literally falls into the water and drowns. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful metaphor for what is actually often happening in our ordinary experience, which is, which is we are drowning in ourselves so much of the time. We're saturated with the notion of self. Now, what the Buddha is recommended by this analysis and many other analyses, and primarily, and I want to make this clear, not through analyses of these sorts, which are, can be purely intellectual, but seeing this operating in experience, beginning to see it in your meditational practice, seeing that Vedana will change, and you have absolutely no control over it whatsoever, for example. The movement in the Satipatthana Sutta actually is an indication of this, because it actually identifies something which is very prevalent within our behaviour, which is to try and keep grasping after a self, no matter how small it might get. <laughs> yeah. So we're always grasping. It starts off with the body and everything to do with the body. And actually the primary bulk of the Satipatthana Sutta is devoted to all of the body, and it goes through breathing meditations and looking at the body and seeing the body as being nothing but you know, the heap of bones and tissues and all this sort of stuff and breaking it down and trying to break down a sense of self as being this gross physical form. It then takes you into feelings, trying to show when you really start to experience that those feelings are not under your control, that there is nothing which constitutes selfhood to them Feeling as feeling, to reiterate the passage in the Satipatthana Sutta. Not feeling as self. Not body as self. But body as body. Feeling as feeling. Without instilling that sense of I into it, which we love to slip in, don't we? It's so easy to ingratiate that, to, to put that sense of self into an experience. Yeah. We often do that. So it then takes you into mind states and showing how the mind states themselves, when we begin to really look at them, there is nothing within them. Remember what I was saying last night, every thought really should come with a little tag just passing through. Why do we take it so personally? Why do we identify thoughts as being us? I am what I think. I am who I think I am. This just seems simply crazy. Really, wild thoughts come up and they pass away and other wild thoughts come up and they pass away without any sense of self attached to them if we begin to really look at it. And finally, it gets down into the deepest, deepest levels which are called dhammas, which I'm really not going to translate, which, if you like, are the, the smallest elements that go up to make up our experience whatsoever and showing even those don't have any sense of self within them. There is nothing we can identify as being us within even that smallest level. So it's taking it from the grossest to the subtle and showing that it's not I, not me, and not mine. Now, lest one think this is a doctrine of no self, it isn't. What it leaves 
Uh, what it takes away, I should say, what it takes away is the sense of identification, of ours trying to identify continuously with whatever is going on, rather than observing what is going on. And what we're doing in these meditations is beginning to actually start to decrease identification by just seeing what happens, seeing what's going on. Eventually, you know, if you stick in doing Vipassana, you can be led into deeper and deeper meditational practices which start to decrease the levels of identification. But even at a fairly gross level, you can start to see that this is not I, this is not me, and this is not mine. And what this leaves us with, ultimately, is a courage to be. Not to be in terms of an identity. You know, what generally we find is that that sense of I is wanting to be like that stick you know, in the English pronoun. It's like wanting to be like that, solitary and unitary, when it isn't solitary and unitary. You know, wanting to be the identical thing. Jean-Paul Sartre, again, who I quoted last night, actually says that basically human beings want to be like tables and chairs. Tables and chairs have a relative solidity to them. You know, they appear to be what they are. They don't change terribly quickly. They don't have the freedom that we have. Now, whilst I don't share all of his, um, you know, his particular ways of looking at things, I think there's something that he's got there, which is, in some senses, when we create an identity for ourselves, we're literally trying to be that, be something in the world, you know, rather than being followed by whatever role you happen to take on. I had a great answer to the age-old question I posed, you know, I gave you earlier on, which is um, when I was in South Africa many, many years ago, about 20 years ago, and I was teaching there. And um, I, I fell into the mistake that most of us do at some point, and I said to, to this person, what do you do? And I came across with the most marvellous answer, which I, he said, I play at being professor of linguistics. I love the word I play at, <laughs> rather than you know, I am. Yeah. Now that play can be serious, and one doesn't have to say that you know, it's not serious, because obviously the jobs and roles that people have in life are often very, very serious. But it's actually that slight distance taking it away from this is not what I am. The role is secondary to being. And what the meditational practices throw you back onto is your sense of being rather than the roles which necessarily through being part of a society and what we do, we have to inhabit. But we don't have to inhabit them as a sense of, with a sense of identity. We don't have to be a thing in this world, fixed and unchanging. In fact, we can't be fixed and unchanging. Um, that's sad or the good news, depending on which way you want to look at it. We don't. Even those around us who we think are fixed and unchanging are not. Often we freeze frame them at a particular time in their life. And it's only when the photograph that I have in my mind doesn't match the person anymore who I see that I say, you've changed. <laughs> or something of that sort. And that can be over a very long period of time. Yeah. Till you get to that point of saying, you've changed. Yeah. 
Now, if that's going on for the other, it's going on for ourselves. What the Buddha is recommending, perhaps I'll finish off on this, what the Buddha is recommending is we live the self as it is, how it is, not how we imagine it to be or think it to be. Now, that self, how it is, is a process. And it's a process that if you take the spiritual path that Buddhism offers, that one can be directed towards ethical and wholesome ways of being in this world. As a self, it's often more directed towards unwholesome ways of being in this world, because they're ways of being for myself, rather than being for others in this world. And I'll say more about this as we go through the week. But that's the fundamental shift, living the self as a thing or living the self as a verb. Living it as a verb offers freedom. It offers spaciousness. It offers a dynamism which often isn't there when we live the self merely as thing, as being, I am this thing. whatever it is you call yourself. I am this sort of person, I am that sort of person, I do this sort of job, and you turn yourself into an object in this world. When there's objects, there's very little possibility, although change will still be there, there's very little possibility of the freedom and the spontaneity that comes with being no thing. Not nothing, but being no thing. I'll finish there. Let's see. And again, I'll leave it open for yes, a few questions, if there are any. Yes. Yes, I was wondering about uh, the habits, the fact that we identify with our habits. Mm-hmm. Um, often the habits come from uh, living with our family, you know, we get them from growing up with our parents or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And I just wonder whether there was a kind of connective problem with the self as well, where we identify ourselves by being a member of our family and we think that reinforce uh, our the sense of belonging to family, reinforce our sense of self, you know, where yeah. there's kind of collective problem in society where we reinforce constantly. I think, I think it's both. It's, it's collective and individual. I mean, for example, within families, we'll often develop hab- habits that distinguish us from others, for example. I'm not like them. You know, because I do this and I think this way and so on and so forth. And we try to develop an identity out of that. Now, there's nothing wrong with you know, being in opposition and being different and all those sorts of things. It's when you try to create a solid self of ident- sense of identity out of it that the problem emerges, really. Plus, there are collective habits, which we all share. I mean, the I is a collective habit that we all have. You know, I, you, only exist because you know, of the way that we collectively respond to each other. You know, it's, it's something that we do. Other language groups don't have such strongly formed sense of I, other. They often have, for example, much more collective senses. And that becomes much more of a collective sense of identity. You know, and, you know, I lived in Tibetan society for a long time. And Tibetan society is very much like that. You know, to talk in, in I terms, as I would do in English, is considered to be very arrogant. You know, we talk about we, and we do everything together. 
you know, and that sort of thing. Now, these are habits that we have, which are formed out of society, and they're habits which are formed individually. In themselves, they're not a problem. It's when we begin to identify with them that they become the problems. You know, I don't want to make out that everything that goes on in ordinary life and ordinary language is wrong, because I think that would be simply crazy. What I'm trying to say is it's because we fixate on it and we close it down and we hold it very tightly that it becomes a problem because, in a way, it ends up as a pathology. Now, we can live those things, play those roles, do these things without them necessarily becoming a problem. And that's living it much more lightly, much more spontaneously. I've obviously talked to you in su- su- submission this evening. <laughs> yes. Consciousness, yeah. I think, well, there's a big answer to this one, and it's a very long answer, but I'll try and give the very short one. The very short one is I think that the whole notion of pure consciousness arises in later Buddhist thought, primarily not so much doctrinally, although it becomes doctrine in many of these later schools, but primarily as a felt experience that goes on in meditative experience. So in other words, in very deep states of meditation, it feels like there is something like there is pure consciousness without an object. That's what it feels like. Quite clearly, the Buddha is saying that there is no such thing. Actually, even even at that level, consciousness is still experiencing an object, even if that object is itself at that level. Um, I think what the problem is, and the problem with most of traditions, whether you call it Buddhism or any other tradition, Christianity even, is that what you get is doctrinal elements arising which are often based on experience and get solidified into doctrines. And I think what the Buddha was primarily trying to show us was, A, was something to do with his own time, which I really won't want to go into, because actually that's what Hinduism was saying at that particular period of time, that there was something called pure consciousness. And the Buddha was very firmly arguing against it, that you couldn't find a consciousness that wasn't a consciousness of something at all. Again, something that goes against the later teaching that you find in the early texts very strongly 
is that consciousness is always embodied. You know, there is no such thing as disembodied consciousness. You know, and again, you'll find that idea arising in some later traditions in Buddhism. Now, I've been trying to be very clear that the teachings I'm trying to give over this coming week really emerge out of the earliest tradition. And I don't mean Theravada by that, by the way, uh, for those who have a clue what these schools are. And what I'm really trying to do is this is the earliest body of text that we have that purport, and I do say purport, to be the teachings of the Buddha as recorded. Um, and they give a very different picture from much from the later schools of Buddhism. You know? Now, I'm not arguing against them. I'm just saying they're saying something slightly different. And I can understand why they're saying it. Um, but it's unfortunate it gets put in doctrinal terms as opposed to simply being seen as what it is, which is really somebody reporting on their meditative experience. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. No, not necessarily. It's, I mean, to get a broader picture of that, I can only, again, because I don't want to kind of confuse everybody else who's not really au fait with what we're talking about here. But the one thing that you really have to look at is the earliest tradition on psychology within it, which will actually say all of this is part of one system, which is the system of mind. It's not as if you've got some higher mind. It, that Everything is there. Everything you need is there. For example, the attention you need, the, the mindfulness that you need, it's all there. And the wisdom arises, in a sense, from actually, if you like, very crudely, nudging that in the right direction. So it begins to see, for example, with mindfulness, with the development of more and more mindfulness, or awareness, as I prefer to call it, you begin to see that there is not a self attached to most of this experience. You know, that is actually looking at the emptiness of self within that experience. And it's not a higher mind as such, or a higher consciousness which is perceiving that. It's all arising from out the same psychological conditions, which is like a closed system. You know, but it, I'd have to give you a much longer and much more complicated answer to really kind of put that across to you here. But the teachings, if you're interested in it, it's found in the Abhidhamma, in, in the early tradition. Yeah where you don't have to have something outside. <laughs> yes, um, it's often pointed out how the Eastern traditions, like you say, are coming from a more collectivist culture, mm. cultures, whereas in the West we have much more individualised um, ways of relating with one another. Um, and it, I was really thinking about this teaching of selflessness or not-self mm. and how this is being brought Because in the West we have all this tradition really building up the self mm. um, and improving our self-confidence and self-esteem and all these kinds of things. Um, whereas in the East there's this kind of, uh, if you like, deconstruction of, of the self. Mm. Um, but I wonder, um, given that we live in such an individualised culture, um, um, I mean... It, I'm wondering 
to fall back on if it's not the self, because we live in such kind of fragmented times where we don't have communities and traditions to sustain us, which maybe other cultures did have, so that they could deconstruct the self. Um, that would be my question. What do we have to fall back on in the West? Because there must be some reason why we've tried to shore up the self in such a way, historically. Well, I think historically, the, as I think as Michel Foucault puts it, again, a French philosopher, I mean, the, the, the self that we have is of fairly recent origin in the sense that it dates back to Renaissance period. You know, before that, there's much, much more of a collective idea of self. So for whatever historical or sociological reasons, there's, there's this process of individuation going on and this need for self-assertion and all the sorts of things that we find within the West. However, I didn't think it's a question of the either-or. It's either you know, the Eastern concept or the Western concept in the sense of you know, you've got a so-called fallback, what you're calling something you can fall back on into the East. That's changing. I mean, I've seen that change over 30-odd years going backwards and forwards to the East. It's becoming much more in the East like the West. We have a globalised economy. I think we're getting globalised culture, like it or not, as well. I think that's probably right. I mean, we can be romanticising if we... And I tend to do this and slip into this as well, which is if we just talk about the East. I mean, you do find traditional cultures like that. A lot of it's to do with language as well, the way that language has grown up and dominates. Yeah, you, you can't separate the two. Language and culture go together. But the point I was trying to make, I don't think it's a case of either or, no matter how you make the decisions, because I think what the Buddha really is talking about is not... Um, whether you have this more collective sense or whether you have this highly individualised sense is much more how do you live this self that you are you know how do you live it you know and that means not necessarily living it in the tight constrictive way that we do that actually gives us grief I mean that's really the problem that gives us grief and I think you can live that self in a highly individualised society as much as you can live it within a, within a society which um, supposedly seems to have more to fall back on. Uh, it's really about how you live that self. And I think that's the question that, that really arises for me uh, in this practice of Buddhism in the West. Yeah. Um, because it isn't for me an either-or. It's not having romanticised societies because actually... Having lived in um, Eastern communities of various shapes and forms, you know, um, India, Tibetan society, Sri Lankan society, you know, they have a lot to be desired as well. They might have a much more collective sense of self, but they actually have much more repressive mechanisms within them as well. You know, and much more um, homogenizing elements. You know, you, you're either for us or against us, kind of thing. So for me, it becomes, how do you live this self without suffering immediately arising? And I think that's what the Buddha gives us. In living this sense of self as verb, which is what I've been trying to explain tonight, I think gives you much more idea of how we can live within whatever society we find ourselves within. How, do we, how can we connect with people? Because actually, if we're not just rooted deeply within. We can connect people. Whether they connect with you, that's their problem. But you can connect with people. You can be with them. You can behave generously. You can behave compassionately. You can behave much more ethically with this diminution of the sense of this fixed notion of self.
So I don't know, it's a response really to your question rather than anything else. I wouldn't say it was an answer. We have time for one more quick one if anybody's got anything. Um, a more uh, question, a practical question. Good. Yeah. Um, I was meditating, I made one of the meditation sessions this morning, I was noticing um, more rather than um, thoughts coming up, thought it was almost like uh, my. Um, Concentration on, on my you know, my nostril mm. was there, and then I, mean, I don't know whether I was repressing thought or thoughts. It would be almost like there was something was starting, a thought was starting to arise, but then it, would, it was almost like a kind of like a blip, mm-hmm. so like a blip in my um, awareness of, of, of what I was concentrating on. Right. Now is that? I'm, I guess it's a question. Is is it? Could it be that I'm Repressing thoughts that are starting to arise, or no, it doesn't sound doesn't it doesn't sound like it to me. It doesn't just carry on. Mm. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure I could allow a thought to at that point a thought to arise mm. quite easily. Well, repression, I think you'd probably you'd know it and recognise it a lot more because it's the act it's it's the activity to avoid something. It's not just that it, as you say, arises as a blip and then goes. That's quite different. That sounds to me much more like, and I'll use this phrase because I think it's important for everybody, that something that actually is going on most of the time. Each, each thought, and this is a Tibetan phrase, each thought is self-liberating. It arises and it can very quickly pass away. Yeah, it sort of builds. Yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't fully form, for example. Yeah, it builds up something. Yeah. That's right. Whereas actually avoidance is much more active. You know, you're actually doing something. I'm not literally wanting to look at that. Now, there can be elements of that, and you can only really discern that um, by keep on doing the meditation practice. You know, you'll begin to discern on the elements where you're actually directly avoiding or when actually things are just arising and passing away and just arising and passing away. Yeah. But it sounds to me in that case it was, just, it was just literally something that was coming up and then it's gone, just like a bubble, actually. And this is a, a, um, a simile I often use. It's like a bubble <laughs> rising to the surface of a lake and just, just dissipating. Yeah, and that's it. it. Doesn't get any further. It doesn't get into the proliferation that we talked about last night. Yeah. That's a, that's the good news. <laughs> okay. Well, we have just under twenty minutes to the last sitting because. I always play around with this session and I so don't stick to the timetable. This becomes a lot more fluid. So if we could have the bell ringer ring the bell seven minutes before nine and we'll sit at nine till half past again. And again, I give you the opportunity to do some walking meditation. <laughs> Although it hasn't been so conducive to it today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.